I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Um, well, I am elated uh, to be sitting down with the Internet's OBGYN, uh, Dr. Jen Gunter, um, mostly because every time the three of us dive into the, the realm of female reproductive health, it is always a mind-blowing, eye-opening conversation for the three of us. And uh, who better to have that conversation with than, than you, Jen? Um, your book, The Menopause Manifesto, just came out recently. Uh, you have a new podcast with Ted that just came out, Body Stuff. Um, Jen, outside of that, uh, take a, a second here to give our listeners a little bit of uh, an introduction into who you are and uh, the very important work that you do. Yeah, so I'm an OBGYN. I'm from Winnipeg originally, and I trained in London, Ontario. And I've been in the States since uh, 1995. I came down here to do some additional training and ended up staying. And I think I sort of view myself as a health educator, as someone trying to raise the general level of knowledge for the public uh, and also, you know, for physicians, because there are big gaps in medicine. And, you know, I, I, I can't necessarily fix things at a governmental level, but I can certainly, you know, help people be more informed, which then allows them to hopefully advocate for themselves better and also be more aware of, you know, especially with this growing trend of sort of health influencers online, you know, be more aware and more skeptical of a lot of the misinformation they may encounter. Mm. The, uh, the, the gaps in the world of healthcare is something that I'm I'm really curious to kind of pick your brain about, especially like especially doing this podcast over the last <clears throat> six years. One of the things that we've come to learn uh, is that there is a massive gap between like women's health and men's health, especially when it comes to men and women's health surrounding the reproductive organs. Um, can you talk a little bit about like where those gaps exist and? And maybe even go into like, well, personally, why you think there is a, a large gap between those two things? Yeah, I mean, I think the gaps have always, they've been there since the creation of society. So, you know, if you go back to the very ancient roots of medicine, you know, the ideal was a man and a woman was a literally a physically inferior version. And all of the explanations for, you know, menstruation and pregnancy, you know, revolved around either that inferior body or, you know, something to do well around that being inferior, basically. And the sort of 
that, you know, if the patriarchal view of, you know, if the society's view is that of women, then, you know, medicine mirrors society in many ways. I mean, because the people who are living in society are the people who become doctors, right? And they're the people who write the first textbooks and so on. And, you know, that, that sort of trend of, of, you know, sort of a less curiosity perhaps, or just assuming that women are defective men, uh, you know, for lack of a better sort of descriptor, you know, was really part of, you know, many of the therapies originally, mm. as we got a better understanding of the human body. You have to remember even up until the ni- the early 1900s, I mean, people didn't even know what hormones were, right? right, right. So, mm-hmm. you know, so you're really hampered by, you know, your pre-germ theory, pre-hormones, you know, you're really hampered by what you can actually do medically. So, you know, as we sort of evolved into what I would sort of say the era of modern medicine, right? Like you have germ theory, you have microscopes, you have a basic understanding of the biology. We were still very much, all studies were sort of male centric. You know, what we know about heart disease was about basically what happened to white men with heart disease, right? So, you know, everything we knew about diabetes was about what happened to white men with diabetes. So you have this sort of very, very narrow lack of diversity, you know, in all studies. And, you know, it's really perpetuated, you know, I would say like every generation there's been improvements, but, but, you know, we're still, you know, we're still behind the eight ball in many ways. And I think the COVID pandemic gave us a, with the vaccines gave us a, you know, a great look into that, right. That the pregnant people who are pregnant weren't enrolled in the studies, mm, right? you know, um, and some of that's due to litigious reasons, right. Some of it's due to not wanting to take the risk and, um, and some of it's doing due to, um, you know, institutions or, you know, government institutions not forcing, you know, the need for diversity in studies. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's an interesting point, um, saying that they're, they're, they don't want to take the risk. Um, is it that there's like more of a concern around the liability of what happens if somebody who's pregnant, you know, has a, uh, a negative side effect from a study like a, a vaccine, um, study or, or it like because it's it's funny because as soon as you say that I start to think, is there not a bigger risk by not enrolling yeah. people like that in those studies? Well, for humanity, there's a greater risk, absolutely. But if you're looking on a sort of a dollar to dollar basis for you know um, for a drug company, imagine you 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 give a drug and there are you know, unexpected ramifications with pregnancy, then, you know, do you face lawsuits with that? You know, so you have to, there's a lot of, you know, um, pregnancy can lead to a lot of sort of lawsuits and there's can be a lot of litigious aspects kind of related to it. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, and there's never mind that the, the hormones are completely different, right? Like what's happening to your body and what's happening to your immune system. And, you know, the easiest thing to do is to study people who don't have hormonal fluctuations. And it's really interesting. There's a, you know, a, a, a report that just came out. I just read it today. I mean, I read sort of a, I think it was the Guardian's version of it. So, you know, I, I don't know how accurate it was, but that most mice in studies are, are male, right? Because not wow. having those cyclic sort of hormonal fluctuations just make that makes it harder to study everything, right? Like if your hormones are a moving target every day and hormones affect your immune system, you have to design your study more robustly. You may have to have more things. So, but that's not an excuse just because it's harder. Yeah, right. doesn't make it an excuse, right? <clears throat> mm-hmm. yeah. We Because at the end of the day, you know, half the population 
it has those hormonal fluctuations. So mm. like you're not really studying the effects on those, that group of people, if you're not including them in your mm -hmm. studies. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I get it. If you're trying a completely brand new novel drug and you're like, well, I just want to see if it's even works. Let me test it on like 20 male mice because you know, if it doesn't work for them, why, why invest in sort of the next more expensive study, mm -hmm. but that should be a real rapid progression, right? As opposed Ooh, to this sort of one to the other. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When you were speaking before there, I had a, I had a question and you, you, you sort of, you, you sort of, you sort of answered it, but that like brief history of like how we've come to this place where, you know, everything has been male centric in terms of like how we, how we study things and, um, and how things like drugs get produced and everything. Um, but like I, uh, there's, there is like we, and you, you mentioned it, like we, we progress with each generation. We seem, we, we progress further and further and each generation takes a new step. And, and to, you know, in, 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 in our generation, I feel like we are, we are in a place where at least in my relationship and many, and many of the relationships that we see that I see around me where, um, where like there, there is not, there's not nearly as much of, of the, um, of like an old school, you know, like uh, man works, woman takes care of child, like that dynamic, like that, that seems to, at least in, in, in my immediate circle has more or less died out. And, and yet the huge stigmas and taboos and lack of education around uh, women's health remains. And that is fully shown in, if you could watch our entire history of our podcast in like, you know, in like a trailer sized chunk, yeah. you would see us having our minds blown every time we touch on something that is like female specific and, and we, us just going like, holy shit, never knew that. Oh my God, we didn't know that. Oh my God, that's how that works. You know, I knew the word, never knew what it meant. Oh my God, knew. they're not studying that? At, yeah, like everything. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's like mind-blowing, mind-blow after mind-blow after mind-blow. And to one degree, obviously, yes, you need to learn. I and mean, that's good that we learn. But it also speaks to the fact that we didn't know it before. And we didn't know it before for a reason. Because it wasn't something that was you know, broadly taught or accessible in like the, in, in your typical sort of like curriculum and whether it's in school or what you're talking about as, as people and, and especially how important it is now in the new dynamic of relationships where and you, you mentioned pregnancy, like how important it is to know to, for everybody to understand what is going on with somebody who is pregnant and, and how they like what the risks are and what the challenges are and, and what, what might be happening if, um, you know, if something's not working or if you're unable to get pregnant and what's involved, if you have to go through IVF treatment or like all of these things that we don't really, it just, it just seems like nobody knows about. And yet they're so important for everybody to know whether you are ever going to be pregnant or not. And, uh, and I guess my, my, my question is like, where do you see from the work that you do those stigmas and taboos? Do you see them? Do you see them being reduced? Do you see, do you see this era of, um, uh, of, 
you know, broad, more access, higher access, broader access to information. Do you see that improving the, the understanding of like of female health in general? So I don't really see it improving significantly. I think mm. that definitely one-on-one like your experience, or there's many more people sharing experiences on social media. And so kind of at a grassroots level, I'd say yes. But I think that we have this huge problem uh, at a governmental and sort of uh, institutional level. So if you look at how, what you learn about reproductive biology in schools, you learn about not getting pregnant. It's all framed in purity culture. If you even get that education at all, right? Mm. It's all about how not to get pregnant. It's not how the menstrual mm. cycle works. It's not right. how, how reproduction happens. It's not about the scope of the changes that could happen to mm. your body, whether you have testosterone or estrogen, like whatever you're born with. It's not about that. It's not about useful biological information. It's about how not to get pregnant, right? And so that's purity culture, even when you're allowed to teach it. And so if you look at the impact of like religious voting blocks or the impact of, um, you know, uh, uh, religious schools, right? All of these things have this huge impact on what you can teach, what you can, you know, so you have this sort of, you know, these voids in school because of it. And then you have, look at the government. I mean, how many female prime ministers has Canada had? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, right. Like how many female deputy prime ministers, how many female um, head of the opposition, you know, so you, you sort of, you, the further up you get, you know, the more the glass ceiling becomes apparent. And I think one of the, one of the, one of the dangers of looking around us and saying, well, Hey, like I'm a, I'm a dad and I'm stay at home and, and my wife works or, you know, both of us, you know, you know, we, we're all, we're all accepting of everything in our generation, but when you look above, it's not, but what happens is when you're around that, it's almost like a complacency that you think everybody else is like you, but these Mm -hmm. big institutions, these, they're huge voting blocks of people who are, who want purity culture, who Mm -hmm. want the status quo to stay the same. And politicians generally serve getting reelected. They don't serve the people. And there's a difference. And it's it's easy to get caught in a bubble or to think that you, to think that the broader, the broader uh, outlook or perspective is the same as your, as your bubble. I think that's why outside of the bubble, all you need to do is look to places like, you know, the recent laws in Texas around abortions and you're like, Mm -hmm. Oh fuck, actually, that's not like I am in a bubble or, or just watch handmaid's tale. You know, that's why handmaid's tale is such a, such a mind blowing show because it's like, it's not that it's not that crazy when you think about it, you know, it's not that sci-fi. I mean, I think abortion is a really great example because in Canada, there's no abortion law, right? You know, I was living in Canada when the abortion law was struck down by the Supreme Court. It's not legal. It's not illegal. It's a medical procedure. Wow. Fancy that, you know, and what happened because of that? Nothing. Abortion mm. rates didn't go up. They didn't go to, you know, like mm. nothing mm-hmm. catastrophic happened, right? It was safer. Um, and that, <laughs> That's it. Right. Exa- <laughs> you know, I mean, really, yes, it was easier for people to access. That's what happened. I mean, mm. I, when I say nothing, I mean like abortion. Yeah, you know, right. Yeah. Some, <laughs> some great evil that these mm. people who are against it didn't fall upon this, mm. you know, that type mm-hmm. of thing. And so, you know, that's an example where um, where government has this impact, right? Because who chooses, the, you know, the Supreme Court of Canada? How does all of that, you know, sort of come into play? These laws, you know, 
whether we like to admit it or not, these laws have huge, you know, ramifications. And whereas you look in the United States, you know, we, yes, we have states where abortion looks like it may very well become illegal. There's a very concerning case that's going to come before the Supreme Court, you know, about mm. restricting abortion after 15 weeks. And, mm. you know, how, how does that get fixed? You know, again, voter suppression, all, you know, all of these factors, racism, all these things come into play because generally what oppresses women gets votes in lots how, of places. How does that, how does, how does the Texas thing from, from, from your perspective, how does the, how does, how does the, the Texas law happen in 2021? And I, I know that it has like then repercussions in the Supreme court and, and for the whole country, but like how, because if like if ask me five years ago, I would have gone. Well, that was you know Roe v. Wade was what in the sometime in the eighties, seventy three, seventy three. So like, like that's old news. Like we're not going that way anymore. Like how does how does that happen? Well, I think it's the illusion that there's been big progression when there right. hasn't. But I mean, also part of the problem, like, and these are things that I'm certainly not an expert on. But I mean, the effects in the United States of voter suppression, right? So they do this redistricting where they basically gerrymander. So you look at some of the, you know, you know what you would call a riding in Canada, and it's drawn in the most crazy geographic way to pick up the right kind of voters so they mm. can flip, basically flip a district. And so you have mass voter suppression. You have, you know, laws where, you know, the polls are going to close at whatever seven. So people who work a long job are more likely to be disenfranchised. You have rules about, you know, all these sort of voter suppression rules have a huge impact. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, people, how, you know, how do you, we don't have a national holiday for, mm. um, for elections. I mean, I don't know if it's still the same in Canada, but when I was there, we got four hours off. Like you were, you were guaranteed four hours to go and vote during your, you know, we were, I was a resident and basically on the, on days when there were elections, you know, we would divvy up the, you know, the staff told us, okay, who's going to vote in this block? Like it right. was just part of the discussion. You, you go vote, it's your civic mm -hmm. duty. And there are people who literally can't vote. And so, or if they do, the way the government has structured everything makes it impossible to fight it. So, so yeah, I mean, to, to fix a lot of these things requires not only grassroots level, but you gotta, you have, you know, you have to fix things at the top as well. And, and just on voter suppression there, just like, um, there's a, there's a series on Vox that Vox released like just before the 2020 election in November. That was like, I think it was a three part series on three or four part series. I highly recommend going to watch it. They kind of like take a, a historical view at voter suppression, like how lines have been drawn, gerrymandering and all that stuff. And it was really, really, really mm. incredible. It totally opened my eyes to the subtle ways that, you know, votes are votes go a certain way for a reason. Just to shift gears yeah. here slightly, I, I really, I, you know, talking about misconception, I want to, I want to narrow in on misconceptions specifically surrounding, uh, menopause, uh, because that's, that's definitely something that, um, I don't know a goddamn thing about. So, uh, I would love to know a little bit more, but before we do, uh, I do want to ask you, Jen, a question from one of our lovely patrons. They knew we were speaking to you today. Uh, we have a lot of females in uh, that are a part of our, our Patreon community. And uh, Ashley had written in a question that is, um, is there research being done to currently see if diseases like PCOS and endometriosis are increasing in numbers? And is there a genetic component for something like endometriosis? Uh, so, you know, so... 
we'd have to separate those two conditions out, polycystic ovarian syndrome and endometriosis. They are completely different. Um, there is likely a genetic component with endometriosis. We certainly see it running in families, but a specific gene hasn't been identified that I know specifically. Um, polycystic ovarian syndrome is something um, that is a completely different thing. It's a, just, it's a condition of disordered ovulation. Uh, and we don't quite understand all of the hormonal nuances, you know, with each sort of new um, sort of, I would say development of, you know, hormonal of technology for testing, you know, we sort of learn new things, but it's a very complex um, process of sort of hormonal disturbances that affects um, ovulation and, you know, possibly kind of like the brain ovary connection, if mm -hmm. you will. And um, there may be a genetic component to it as well. I mean, that most diseases have some genetic component, you know, how, what percentage is genetics mm -hmm. is sort of the, the biggest thing. Like, is it 80% genetics? Is it 20%? Um, and both of those can have an impact on menopause. Um, they can both uh, lower the age of menopause. Mm -hmm. The, whether they're increasing or not is hard to know. Um, our diagnostics have changed with a lot of these conditions. So um, comparing, uh, you know, comparing, the diagnosis of polycystic ovarian syndrome in uh, in 2021 with uh, nine, uh, 1981, for example, would be hard because the studies wouldn't have used the same entry criteria necessarily. Okay. Um. So I don't I don't know if it's increasing or if we're more aware of it. Um. Endometriosis again because because some people get managed without surgery. Um. It's and the diagnosis is made definitively by surgery. Again, it's hard to know, so I don't think I can answer those questions. Whether it's increasing, well, there mm -hmm. you go, Ash. I mean, it also seems like uh, everybody that we've talked to on the show who has dealt with endometriosis and deals with endometriosis has had the experience of of having to jump through hoops with their physician oh, yeah. to to have Big it time. be diagnosed mm -hmm. and the physician has has basically said you know something along the lines of like now it's not that it, or like I don't think so for a very long time before they ended up um you know being diagnosed with it so it seems like there's a long road to being diagnosed with endometriosis for many people mm. yeah you oftentimes yeah. hear like a, a periods are they're supposed to be <clears throat> painful and and like pain is just a part of this experience when they're two different, totally different things. I mean, it's part of a, you know, a larger problem of dismissal of symptoms that, yeah. that women have when they go in and, um, and that, you know, how bad does it have to be to get help? You know, the, it shouldn't take five years to get a diagnosis of endometriosis. I mean, when you look at how sort of a, so the workup should progress, you know, someone should really be at the point of a diagnosis, you know, kind of within a year, assuming they have access to healthcare. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, there are sort of certain, you know, medical therapies that may be started first before we go straight to surgery because surgery also can have problems. Right. Um, and so, you know, you want to make sure that you're, you know, maximizing outcomes for people, but it shouldn't be taking five years. It shouldn't be taking 10 years. It shouldn't be taking two, you know, this is something that, you know, people should be able to kind of work through in a sort of a six to 12 month process. Right. So, what, um, what? and if you think about most medical conditions, you know, it, uh, medical conditions that are, you know, not easy to fix like an ear infection, you know, it may take, you know, people have to realize it may take sort of four, six, eight months to achieve a, an accurate diagnosis. What, what makes it, um, hard to diagnose endometriosis, even, even like hearing that six to 12 months, I mean, it, it probably feels like a long time for somebody who's, who's dealing with the pain of that experience and have, has had it probably a lot longer than the amount of time that they've, uh, uh, before leading up to the time that they decided to 
mm. you know, sort of seek help for that. But what what makes it sort of challenging to diagnose endometriosis and why does it take even six to 12 months? Well, it's not really challenging, but it requires surgery, right? To make a definitive diagnosis. And not everybody necessarily needs to have a definitive diagnosis to get treatment. So, so hmm. like everything, you know, someone presents with symptoms and you have to say, well, you know, how bad are your symptoms? Are they affecting your quality of life? How long have you had them? Um, if you haven't had any treatment before, then the first line treatment might be offering uh, medications because when someone presents, for example, with painful periods, we don't know if they have just regular painful periods or if they have a medical condition causing their painful periods. Now, you know, not everybody with painful periods is going to have endometriosis. So if we operated on every single person right off the bat, we'd be giving 80% of people surgery that they, they didn't need to have. Right. right? Mm. So, and then what if you damaged some ovaries on some of those people and then people mm. ended up with complications <clears throat> from that, right. Or just simply the cost to the healthcare system. If you operated on every single person who walked in the door, you know, then where would we have resources? So, so you have to think so much of medicine is someone comes in with symptoms and you, you write down a list of things that it could be. And then you start with the treatments for the things that it seems most likely to be. And then you work through the list and if things don't get better, then you progress and you treat. So if someone comes with super painful periods and they're 19, 20, 21, there are some medical therapies that we would recommend people try first. And we'd recommend they try them for two or three months, because you know what, if those treatments take their pain away, then they don't need to have, have surgery, right? Then they've got a treatment, but that if those sense. treatments <laughs> don't take their pain away, right. Then, you know, then we would say, Hmm, you know, could your persistent pain be endometriosis? And then you have a discussion at that point, what surgery can do and what surgery can't do. Mm. And some people might say, oh, well, I don't know if I want to have surgery. Maybe I'd like to try a hormonal IUD instead. And some people might mm. say, no, I'd like to have surgery. And then you'd progress to that next step. And then, you know, and then, and so that's really how most things go in medicine. It can take two to three months to see how your treatments are going to work but that shouldn't take 10 years and it shouldn't take five years. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, but if you have someone who comes to you at the age of 32, who first time to see you and they've had severe, horrible pain their whole life, and you do an exam and on physical exam, there are findings that are suggestive of endometriosis. You might suggest to that patient surgery sooner, but you would still also offer them the medical options because some people just don't want surgery. Mm -hmm. Surgery can't cure endometriosis. It can treat it and can treat the symptoms for a lot of people. Um, and so it's a much more nuanced discussion than like, you know, mm. what, you know, every person is different and people also have different fertility expectations. They have different, mm -hmm. you know, um, things that they, how they feel about taking hormones or how hormones might affect their body. And so really people should be offered the, uh, the wide array of, of treatment options and they should progress through them. Um, generally in medicine, we, we start from the least invasive to the most invasive, because obviously as you go up in invasiveness, you also go up in risk of complications. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Uh Let's uh, let's talk about menopause. Um, uh, I, I mean, I, I kind of want to. I kind of want to start with this with the question. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder, or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have, or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now, what if we could fix it? 
I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Delon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. That feels really silly, which is what is menopause. But um, uh, instead of that, instead of me asking what is menopause, uh, how about I reframe that and and say, um, what what can what can women expect when facing or thinking about menopause? That's that's a hard question to answer, you know, kind of in in one sentence or, you know, even in less than three words, yeah. <laughs> three words, three words max. Yeah. I mean, that's like that would be like me saying to you, OK, so what can you expect from the age of 40 onwards in your life? <laughs> right, right. Sure, I don't know, sure. like a lot, right? Crisis. Pretty, pretty diverse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, or what can you expect for your whole 20s, 30s and 40s? Right. So, you know, so menopause is the is the end of ovarian function um, from an ovulation standpoint. And that's really biologically what it is. And there's a lot of complex interactions between the ovary and the brain. And uh, there are symptoms, you know, we define menopause as kind of the last menstrual period onwards medically. But because symptoms can start before during this time, we call the menopause transition. That's also called perimenopause or premenopause. It's kind of useful just to think about the whole experience as menopause. Because mm. when your last period actually happens is really only useful for a couple of things, deciding when you can get pregnant and how we manage irregular bleeding. So, you know, from a general day-to-day, how you're living your life, um, you know, from the time of sort of early to mid forties onwards is, you know, kind of the menopause-ish era. Um, and these hormonal changes can cause symptoms. They start to increase the risk of several medical conditions. Uh, and, um, and that's kind of menopause in a nutshell. Not everybody has horrible symptoms. If there's a big diverse range, just like some people have really terrible pregnancies and other people have super easy ones. Sorry, go ahead, Brad. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to ask, we, um, Jerry, you said that you don't know anything about menopause, but uh, we we have done an episode on perimenopause before with uh, with Shirley Weir from Menopause Chicks, and mm-hmm. when we had that conversation, I remember being blown. Like my relationship with what the idea of menopause was was my mom saying that she was hot, and like I was like, yeah, "Oh, your yeah. body temperature <laughs> goes up, and like that must suck being really sweaty for." a few months maybe. And like, I had no idea. And then I realized I was like, Oh wait, I don't even know how long this lasts for. Like, why don't we know anything about menopause, especially, I think especially guys, but like, I think it's a a fairly like common experience that a lot of people just don't know what menopause is. And obviously Jen, you wrote a whole book about it. (laughs) Like what is it? What is it about the lack of knowledge around menopause um, that makes this such an important thing to talk about. Yeah, well, I think the lack of knowledge gets back to the earlier discussion we had about purity culture and how we talk about the, you know, the worth of a woman's body, that it's related to her childbearing potential. And menopause isn't related to that. So absolutely unimportant. And if you mm. look at all your popular media, you don't really see a range of, you know, you see men who are 60 partnered with 25 year olds in movies as if that's, you know, the standard, um, you know, 35 year old women are considered too old for the role. So, you know, everywhere you're reflected, everywhere you look, that sort of lack of importance is reflected. 
you know, I think that's why we don't talk about it. Who wants to talk about what's considering sort of aging out in society, right? Like who wants to talk about their dotage? And obviously these are all false patriarchal ideas about what menopause is. And yeah, and then there's all these downstream ramifications. When we can't talk about it, people don't know what's going on. I mean, the average duration of hot flashes is seven years, right? Whoa. Yeah. Seven Whoa. years. Exactly. That might make you feel differently about, you know, somebody at work saying, listen, like I, I simply cannot present in that conference room because the airflow is awful and I'll get a hot flush mm. and it's not acceptable. Right. Like, like that should be a standard workplace accommodation. Like you're like, there are rooms that can be too hot for you to be in, you know, or, you know, what are the options? What are the options for you? Um, you know, when you don't talk about it, people don't know that there are medications that they could maybe take. When you don't talk about it, um, people suffer in silence. And that really sucks when you're suffering. Even just acknowledging that something's happening can be really useful. Mm. But then the other downside, uh, the other flip side is quality of life is super important, right? With these symptoms. But menopause also starts a chain of events that starts to increase the risk of cardiac disease and osteoporosis and diabetes and, you know, other, other serious things that can shorten your lifespan um, or, or also dramatically affect your quality of life. So when you mm. don't know about that, you don't know to go in to get your testing or your screening or, you know. I've never heard that before ever. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, when you said that before, you said increased risk of medical conditions. I was going, oh, wow, that's something, you know, like, like you said, Jerry, we don't know anything about menopause. Like we know, we know, we know a bit, of, we know a bit about menopause, but that was something I had never heard. And I was really, I was really um, fascinated by that. What, what kind of, because you, you know, you, you were talking about like how, just how complex like the hormonal system is and how challenging it is to, to, um, to do things uh, and 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 study things when hormones are a moving target, um, and you mentioned medical, you you mentioned that there was like that there are medical interventions in menopause. Like, how hard is it to create medical interventions when they are? I'm, I'm assuming they are they hormonal interventions, and and if they are, like, how challenging is that when the hormones are such a challenging moving target to to figure out. Um, you know, there are actually a lot of good treatments for a lot of the symptoms of menopause. This has been a pretty active area of research for, for some time. We can always do better and more is always good. Um, but, uh, you know, we've, they've been using, um, menopausal hormone therapy for some time. It's been far more refined in kind of the last sort of 30 years or so. Uh, and we know that, um, for many women, it's a very safe to use. It's been again, um, overblown the side effects or complications in the press, because there's a lot of money in scaring, scaring women about treatments. Right. So, um, so if you, if you only got your information about, you know, hormone therapy, menopausal hormone therapy from the press, you would believe it was really dangerous and you should never take it. And oh, by the way, the rare side effects from the medication that protects you from osteoporosis, there's other drugs for osteoporosis. Those are also overblown in the press. So what are women supposed to do? Just sit in a corner and crumble up and die? You know, I mean, so risks are never put in perspective because, you know, scary things sell papers, right? They get page clicks. So, so yeah, so there are, there's menopausal hormone therapy can be very helpful for many people. There are medications that can work on hot flushes, medications for sleep disturbances, um, medications, um, you know, to help prevent osteoporosis if hormones aren't for you, um, weight bearing exercise, um, eating healthy. So there are a lot of things that can be done. And this, this whole notion of like misogynistic attitudes towards women's health, May was making me think about the types of misinformation that exist out there when it comes to things like menopause. 
Um, and I know that you you just touched on a couple there, but like what what other sorts of misinformation exists surrounding surrounding this this thing that I'm I'm assuming. Please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm, I'm assuming that every woman, every person with a vagina will at one point in their life, if they live long enough, experience menopause. Um, if you were, if you're a woman and you were born with the ovaries, yes. Okay. Okay. Um, obviously, um, if you're, uh, if you're a, a trans woman, um, then you, you didn't have ovaries to begin with. So that's a different situation. Okay. Uh, and, uh, trans women who are on estrogen, um, could end up having some menopausal like symptoms with stopping the estrogen. But, um, you know, there's a, a lot of things there that we, we just, we don't have good information, sure. um, unfortunately, to guide people because all of the studies are based on, you know, cisgender people at this point. Right. Um, and so, um, so if you were, if you're a woman and born with ovaries, yes, you will go, you will definitely go through, through menopause. And also some trans men who keep their ovaries again, can also have menopause symptoms, but whether or not they're on testosterone can have an impact. And again, mm. those are areas of sort of like active, you know, well, areas where we just, we just don't have information to guide. Um, so sort of sticking with kind of like the cisgender or sort of if you're born with ovaries, mm -hmm. yes, you are, you are going to have menopause, whether, you know, um, at some point and whether it's um, on the earlier side and we call that premature ovarian insufficiency, or if your ovaries are taken out because of surgery, which we're really trying to avoid, unless this is a really specific like cancer reducing, you know, or cancer treatment, um, or, you know, it, or if it's what we call so quote, quote, natural menopause, mm. because we're only born with a certain amount of, um, sites, which are eggs, if you will, um, about 300,000 and through aging and ovulation, the numbers decrease and you get to a point when there's no more, um, oocytes left that can ovulate. And so you have no more estrogen and that interrupts all the signaling with the brain. Oh. All of the estrogen that we make comes from the eggs. Whoa. That's where it comes so from. So wild. Whoa. It's so yeah. wild. Yeah. So it's not from the actual ovarian tissue itself. It's from ovulation. So these tiny little layers of cells are churning out massive amounts of estrogen because those, you know, when you go through puberty, that estrogen is what causes breast development and changes mm -hmm. your fat distribution. And it's also involved in your height. And, you know, every month there has to be enough estrogen that gets in the bloodstream that it can stimulate the lining of the uterus to grow. Right. Mm -hmm. So all of these things happen all of this massive amount of estrogen is produced from these um, little follicles in your, right. in your ovaries. That's and so then when you're no more follicles capable of ovulation, um, you, your estrogen levels, you know, start to change. Actually, interestingly, some months they can be higher because as ovulation starts to get disordered towards the end, sometimes a bunch of eggs can get released at once as opposed to, you know, one. And so that can give you higher levels of estrogen. And then the brain responds because there's a connection between ovaries, between your ovaries and the brain and hormones also change in the brain. And all of that signaling can affect multiple organ systems. Hmm. So, so these biologically, these, these treatments that exist for, for, you know, aiding women through menopause, I, are, are they are they essentially treatments to like trick the trick the body into thinking it's still it's still ovulating or it still has these eggs? Um, no, not really, because we're not giving the levels of estrogen that you would normally be having. I mean, why, why aren't we doing that? 
Um, is that, because... that, that, that sounds like a dumb question. Too, but <laughs> what, like, why aren't we just why? pumping people full of estrogen? Yeah. Well, because super high levels are also associated with complications, right? So uh, you kind of have to, you have to give people what's safe. So, um, you know, so we want to give, you know, very high levels of estrogen can be associated with cardiac complications and other, you know, other, um, other issues. And so you want to give the dose that's the safest that's been studied to produce the benefit that you want. And so we generally, we generally know that, you know, lower levels of estrogen can achieve that higher than, you know, you have in menopause. Um, and that can help reverse also some of the changes in the brain hormones that are um, happening because of menopause. Uh, but, you know, there are also um, medications that work directly on the brain that can be helpful. Mm-hmm. Some antidepressants can be very helpful for hot flushes. Other medications, there's a couple of medications actually for epilepsy that work really well for mm-hmm. hot flushes mm-hmm. because <clears throat> the hot flush just is from your brain. It's your brain telling you you're hot when you're not. And some of that's due to complex changes in hormone signaling, but everything you experience is because your brain tells you it's happening. Your brain assembles the signals. If you cut your foot, it's not painful because you've cut your foot. It's painful because your brain assembled the signals and told you it's painful. Mm-hmm. Because you need, because and because you need to take care of it. It's a, it's like right. It's like a, it's like a signal that says you need to pay attention to this right now. Right, and everything, every signal that we have almost always has a counter signal. So when you cut your foot and your brain tells you that, oh God, that hurts, protect your foot. Your brain is also assessing how bad that damage is, and if it's not, you know, like bone sticking out, if it's not, you know, it sends a signal down that tampons that reduces the pain signaling. So because you don't need it anymore, you re- mm. you receive the trauma alert. Okay, taken care of. You don't need to Whoa. be bombarded with that pain. So mm. you know, it's it's your brain's an incredible That's supercomputer. Wild. I didn't know that. You, That's crazy. You, I uh, sorry. I, d- I just wanted to ask the um the. I I'm, I can't help but think sitting here like three guys asking questions about menopause. I feel like our guys, our general feelings towards this is like people don't know anything about menopause. But I I'm or curious, is it Jen, just like, us? It, is it like do people with vaginas who are like coming up to you know in into their forties and are going to inevitably experience menopause? How much do they know? about menopause, like what role does the doctor play in, in sort of educating and providing guidance through that experience? I don't think people know enough. I think most people are really in the dark about it, but I think, I think it's a reflection though, of being in the dark about their biology in general. I mean, if you ask people to sort of draw like the menstrual cycle and what happens hormonally and, and why the uterus, the, what, what causes the line of the uterus to get thick? Most people won't know that. Right. And that's a shame. I have no People idea. should know that. Right. <laughs> well, it's the estrogen from the oocytes building the layer. So you think about the lining of the uterus like bricks. It's building this thick blood because the embryo needs to implant it in it. And it's thick because for all kinds of complicated reasons that I actually explained in my TED talk. So if you want to know more about that, I have a TED talk on menstruation. Um, like, because we have heavier periods than any other mammal. So, um, so it's an interesting reason why. So, but if people understand that basic biology, it's very empowering because even if you don't want to treat your painful periods, for example, maybe you're like, you don't want surgery. You don't think it's bad enough for surgery. You don't want to take a medication. You you don't want any of that. And there are people who that doesn't fit in their, you know, personal gestalt, if you will, 
knowing why it's happening to your body sometimes is just super empowering. Like, Mm -hmm. so it's not just some weird out of control thing in your body. You're like, Oh, this is the biological Mm -hmm. step. Um, and then when you know the biological step, you know what, then me explaining the different treatments and how they work on those biological steps, then it's a lot easier to accept those treatments. She's like, Oh, mm. like the medication for painful periods that blocks a substance called prostaglandins and prostaglandins are released during menstruation and they make your uterus ramp down and mm-hmm. they increase pain. So understanding all those sequences also can make it easier for people to, to sort of welcome therapies or, or the, okay, I understand that. I still don't want to take those drugs. Mm. Okay. You know, so it's the same with menopause. I mean, I think that, um, it's even worse. I would say, I would say most people have like, maybe like if you gave them a multiple choice question on menstruation, some people might've heard some of those words in the past and they might be able to get some of the answers, but because there's so, there's like nothing discussed about about menopause. People just like, mm. they just don't know. And mm. that's a shame. People and it's anxiety know. inducing. If you yeah. don't <clears throat> like yeah. when, when something's happening and you don't know yeah. what's happening, then you don't know what to do, who to yeah. ask, what to ask. And it, and it's anxiety inducing. And like, I mean, I, I'm again, this is something I've brought up on the show in the last two recordings. So apologies to you, to Brian and Jer and to our listeners. I got hit by a car a couple of years ago. It was a very brief Coles notes version. Got hit by a car, broke my pelvis in the, in the, in the ambulance. And then the, the hmm. paramedics are like, Hey, you're about to go into a room with 20 doctors because you broke your pelvis. There could be some really bad damage. And that's why there's so many doctors. So just so you know, that's why, because if you go in there and we didn't, we don't tell you that, then you'll have no idea why there are so many doctors there. And you might think that you are dying right this minute which could be very, ang- which could make you freak out. So we're mm-hmm. telling you mm-hmm. so that you don't freak out. And I was like, oh, that's really helpful to know. Thank you for that. Now yeah. I'm not yeah. going to freak out. <laughs> I mean, just, it's really amazing how just even a very, I mean, that's a tiny bit of information, right? Yeah. Like it's a tiny bit, but it's so important. And having knowledge about what's happening to your body just allows you one to make sure it's not some weird thing that's happening to you. Cause sometimes that's all people want to know. Sometimes people are comforted knowing it's happening to other people, but also it allows you to respond more to other information. It allows you to take charge of your health. Yeah. It allows you to make better decisions. You know, it's just always good. And that's really what I see my role is with, you know, and that's what I'm trying to do really with the podcast with, with Ted is to raise people's awareness about different organ systems. You know, mm-hmm. like if you knew how your kidneys and your thirst mechanism worked, maybe you'd be less likely to believe the eight glasses of water a day. Man. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. I, it, that something about that really speaks, uh, really speaks to me in, it, it just, it reminded, it reminds me of how, um, uh, so I live with cystic fibrosis and, and for, for a large majority of my life, I didn't really look into what that meant. Like I didn't look into the mechanisms of how that disease affects the, my internal organs and why my lungs do the things my lungs do and why my, my, you know, um, my digestive system is the way that it is. And then I, I think, I think by, by, you know, just a byproduct of this podcast in the conversations that we've had, I, I began to do a little bit more digging into like what, what is happening within me biologically? Like, why is my body the way it is? And it completely shifted my experience in going to the CF clinic every three months compared to all the other times that I've done it for my entire life. It completely shifted the conversations that I was having with my, my, 
my healthcare providers. You're speaking it, the same language. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, 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 and I'm hearing what they're telling me and it's making me shift. It's, it's shifting the way that I'm deciding to treat my own body outside of that clinic. Right. Um, so yeah, I, th- I think that's a really good point that you bring that up. Like it's, there's a lot, I think a lot of people don't consider the ways that they can own their own health. So, you know, in this conversation, how women can own their, uh, their reproductive health and, and there are ways to do that. And, and it just takes a little bit of uh, a little bit of like digging a little bit of curiosity. Um, I mean, you know, the, this, the secret is a lot of, it's not that hard. Like, right, you know, yeah. you think about cystic fibrosis and yeah, it's on one hand, it's an obviously incredibly complex it involves every organ system, but, or almost every organ system. But on the other hand, you know, it doesn't take that much to know a little bit about what's happening in your pancreas or what's mm-hmm. happening in your lungs to all of a sudden to have, now you have so many more puzzle pieces. You can start to put them together and you can be like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And you know, like it just, you know, I, I, I think, I think if everybody had that knowledge about, you know, about, you know, if they had a medical condition about that, but just about their body in general, because you never know when you're going to get a medical condition, right? You're Mm -hmm. just, it's, it's so much easier to have conversations. It's just um, so much easier to be empowered and it's your body. You should know how it works. Why not? Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is, we're we're all walking machines. We want to know how these machines work. This is like um, yeah. the uh, this is like the um, sort of uh, related idea to why you should go to therapy because yeah, right, totally, therapy yeah. can help you understand the yeah. the mental health side of it. Yeah. Understand Could, the physical Brad, side too. Brad couldn't couldn't resist to get a little therapy. <laughs> I, I love <laughs> Jen. I love talking about therapy. So hey, <laughs> you know what? Program. I you know I'm a big proponent. Lots of therapies are so amazing for people in cognitive behavioral therapy. I give a huge shout out in the book because it's amazing. CBT can help with hot flushes. It can help with insomnia. Wow. It can help with that. It, yeah, it can help with um uh, with bladder control. Did you know that cog- that CBT is more effective than any medication for overactive bladder? Whoa. Really? That's pretty crazy. <clears throat> That's because how we were because before we were talking about how the brain has has inhibitory pathways, right? So when your bladder is full, your brain's like your bladder's going full and full and full. I need to empty, I need to empty, I need to empty. Your brain also has signals that go, not now, not now, not now, not socially appropriate. We can hold on, we can hold on. And with overactive bladder with CBT, you strengthen those inhibitory signals. Cool. Yeah. Interesting. And you actually make the pathway stronger and it's more effective than medication for overactive bladder. So it dampens the signal that's telling you you need to go now. Right. So you're strengthening the pathway that shuts that signal off. So, um, and you do it by what we call timed voiding. Like you start delaying it by a minute, by two minutes, you try to focus your brain activity on something else. You think I don't need to go right now. You do all these behaviors that emphasize the inhibitory pathway. Wow. If you train uh, my dog to stay in his bed. (laughs) If you're, if you're listening right now and you've been looking for a sign to go to therapy, this is it. So (laughs) book book your session, put it in a calendar, make a set of reminders or something and, uh, and book an appointment. Well, I made all those CBT for the bladders actually done more by a physical therapist than a, than a, than a psychotherapist, but yeah, but a lots of, you know, you know, therapy is incredibly helpful for anxiety and depression and many, many, many other things. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, has overlap with insomnia. I mean, therapists are so equipped to help people with insomnia. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that, you know, if you're suffering in any, I would tell people that therapy in general relieves suffering. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that would be the, the thing that I would, 
I w- I'll be with you on your therapy plug. <laughs> cool. Um, Jim, we're going to, we're going to wrap here in a, in a, in a couple of minutes, but I had one more question that's related to something you said earlier. Um, when, um, we mentioned, when you mentioned some of the, um, the unknowns, because it's just like, it's just not studied there with, um, um, with trans men, um, who might be taking testosterone and like what that effect is. And, and that sort of uh, made me wonder, like, is there, is there anything that suggests or that, and I know you said that that's not very studied, so there's not very, there's not much known there. Um, but whether you are taking testosterone as a, uh, like supplemental testosterone or, um, or, or maybe in, in females like who are high performance athletes, who I, I know that it can be quite common for high performance female athletes to have like, um, to have suppressed, uh, menstrual cycles. Um, and, and is, does any of that could could higher levels of testosterone or or whatever's happening that ha- that <clears throat> that um, happens in female athletes with suppressed menstrual cycles lead to um, earlier uh, earlier menopause? Um, so there's a couple of so there's we sort of need to tease that apart a little bit. So I don't know anything about high testosterone in female athletes. Um, I, I just, I don't know anything about that. Um, but, but female athletes who do have suppressed <laughs> menstrual cycles and they don't have, they typically don't have high testosterone. Um, so what happens is, um, when you have a very low body fat, um, and extreme physical activity, and we don't actually understand why can impact the hormones that trigger your ovaries to tell you to ovulate each month. Mm-hmm. So basically it's sort of suppressed pressing on that signaling. And it's very complex. So we don't, we don't really understand. And it's called hypogonadotropic hypogonadism for a lack of, wow, that is a really long word. And yeah, so it's exercise induced amenorrhea is the other exercise induced Mm -hmm. lack of periods, exercise induced amenorrhea. Or in bro science, it's just, you're getting jacked up and you're spending that energy on bench press. Yeah. That's the bro. That's the bro science. Okay. (laughs) Um, so it is important. It doesn't, we don't know if it affects the age of menopause. So I, I can't tell you about that, but we do know that it can impact a woman's risk of osteoporosis because oh. without the S. So if your estrogen levels are reduced from that, estrogen is important in building bone. And uh, so it is important if people don't have cycles because, and first of all, to get worked up, to make sure there isn't another cause, another medical condition that we need to know about, make sure it's not primary ovarian insufficiency, which we used to call premature menopause, but also to have a discussion about their bone health. Um, it doesn't mean they need to stop exercising, but actually sometimes we actually give small amounts of estrogen back to these women to protect their bones um, mm. because we're building bone mass up until the late twenties. And so if somebody is not having their period in their ni- 19, 20, 21, they may not get their peak bone mass, right? Oh, wow. um, now, some of the exercise that they're doing might be helpful, but so they really should be seeing an expert so they wow. can make sure that they're doing the best for their, their and they may not need anything. It's going to be an individual factor, but, but that's just something to have on your radar that if you have the exercise induced amenorrhea, that you need to make sure that it's not having an impact on your bones. Mm. Wow. Wow. Well, this is well, why you need people who, who are uneducated, ask uneducated questions, because <laughs> then it leads to learning things that were, that I, that are completely, I did no clue about and yeah. now I'm smarter. I, I was, I was just going to say, uh, once again, uh, knowing that we were going to get into this topic, minds, minds have been blown once again, Jen, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to sit down with us and, 
share just a, a glimmer of, of your knowledge. Um, take a moment to, to plug the podcast. Um, how can people find you and, and stay up to date with what you're up to? And so I'm, you can find me on Twitter, Dr. Jen Gunter, Instagram, Dr. Jen Gunter, Facebook, Dr. Jen Gunter. Um, and I have a blog on Substack called the Vigenda with a J. Uh-huh. Oh, and, yeah, um, nice. and then I have uh, my podcast with uh, the Ted audio collective, which is called body stuff. And, um, we have three episodes out already. And as I, it's, we've done the kidneys, the a colon and we did menopause this week we did Amazing. the ovaries uh, by way of menopause and um next week's all about bones and bone health and uh hopefully people will take a listen and each podcast has a sort of a complimentary uh, four minute video that i did with cool graphics and lovely animation to explain some of the bio, you know the complex biology that we talk about Amazing. Cool. That's awesome. jen well thank you again this is really really fun mm-hmm, thanks Thank you so much for having me. It's nice meeting you guys. And stay safe in Halifax. Yeah, yeah, you too, down there in uh, Northern Cal. Thanks. That is it for today. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, make sure that you share our podcast with your friends. We love those extra ears. Sick Boy Podcast is a Snack Labs production. It is produced by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, Brian Stever, and Lauren Sankey. Sound design is coming to you from Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. The music of the show is from our friend Rich O'Coin. And Sick Boy Podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis. That is it for today. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.